that they have followed the Lord Jesus in. So as I call their names, if they just come up here, I'll present them with their certificate. You can give them another hand. I think it's perfectly appropriate when somebody follows the Lord in water baptism. Max, would you come? And Becca, would you come? Proud of you, man. You can have your seat. So happy for you. And Cecil. And Randy. Where's Randy? There he is, right in front of me. Proud of you. Thank you. Randy, Lord bless you. Love you, man. Well, it's Easter Sunday, and it's always a joy to be able to bring the Word on Easter Sunday. And today we are in what we are calling part five of our sermon series, and this will be the last uh, sermon in that series. But if you have your Bibles or you have your phones, you can look at the Bible app on your smartphone, and all my notes will be there. You can follow along there. But if you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark, the eighth chapter. Excuse me, the 16th chapter. It's 1 through 8 that I'm reading. Didn't think that sounded right. I was uh, somewhat shocked this morning. I always check my phone when I wake up, and unfortunately, I've gotten in the habit of going to Facebook first. I don't know why, but I checked Facebook when I first woke up this morning, and as I was scrolling down through the different posts, I came to a a Christian website that asks the question, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Can you still be saved? And I thought, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. It's this one day, this, this day that we call Easter, that is not only the most important day for you and I as children of God, it's the most pivotal point in human history. Tragically, it's not as well known as the Christmas story. So I'm going to share at least part of it with you this morning. Mark chapter number 16, beginning with verse 1. Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The woman, excuse me, the women fled from the tomb 
trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Would you bow with me, please? Lord Jesus, there's nothing much more to say other than how thankful we are for this day that we celebrate each year, this most important day of our lives. And dear Jesus, this morning as we once again tell the story of your death and your resurrection, I pray for the anointing of your Spirit to go before and not only anoint my words, but anoint the hearts and minds of each person who hears them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you have done much study of the Word of God, perhaps you have heard this before, but verse 8, where we ended our reading, used to be the, in the original manuscripts the end of the Gospel of Mark. It ended with the women walking away frightened. But later manuscripts added both a shorter ending and a longer ending to the book of Mark. And uh, I got thinking about that here a couple of weeks ago. And, and I thought, what if, what if the story ended in verse 8? What if that was the end of the story? That would seem like a strange way to end a book. I mean, ending it not with, with great courage or great hope, but, but with, with trembling, bewilderment, women fleeing in silence. But as we're going to see this morning, this story, the way that this story ends is, is one of the reasons that we can believe this story is not only a good story, but it's a true story. If someone made up this story, I'm guessing they wouldn't have ended it with verse 8. You see, one of the unique aspects of Christianity, if you compare Christianity to any other faiths or religious movements, one of the unique things about this, this Christianity that we have available to us, is that it traces its origin to this one particular event, one particular day in history. It's not true for Buddhism. It's not true for Judaism. It's not true for Islam. It's not even true for atheism. One day, there was no such thing as a church. And I'm, when I speak of the church, I'm talking about you and I, the body of Christ, one day there was no such thing as a church, and then suddenly overnight, there was. Or suddenly this group of people who believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, and they believed it so much that they were willing to even suffer and give their lives as a testimony to the truth of that belief. Now, there are four biographies of Jesus found in the New Testament. We know them as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, in all four of those biographies, the, the last week of Jesus' life is by far given the most attention by each of those gospel writers. Now, that's unprecedented in any biography. Why would they, why would they write it like that and just focus on the last week? of the person's life whose focus it was they were writing. 
It's because these earlier followers of Jesus insisted with remarkable unity that the one event that created the movement that we know as the church was the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Everything we believe in centers around that. You see, in our world today, there are many people who think that the resurrection, if it's true, would really be good news. But the problem is they're not sure if they believe it. So many today will will tell you that in Bible days, people didn't have science, so they were probably a bit gullible. And so being gullible, when Jesus died, uh, you know, some people felt this vague sense of his presence still inspiring them. And so over time, uh, this vague sense of his presence morphed into stories about Jesus being raised from the dead. But that theory of how the story of his resurrection took place is only plausible if we don't take the time to understand how people of that day thought. It is plausible if we ignore the historical, and it's plausible if we ignore the the historical and cultural context of what was going on. When Jesus' resurrection took place, the women who we read about in Mark 16... They knew that it was true news, but it took a while for them to understand that it was good news. It's good news this morning, amen? Now, what I'd like for us to do in our time together this morning is to see what happened to the very best of our ability through their eyes. And I think it will give us an altogether different and perhaps new appreciation of this story, because many of us don't really understand that there is a backstory to this idea, this, this thing we call resurrection. And that backstory, I believe, is critical for us to understand why we celebrate this every year. It's also a powerful reason for understanding that this resurrection of Jesus really did take place, and it's really, really good news. To help you understand what people in the first century must have felt when they heard about Jesus raising from the dead, let me give you a little analogy, and I'll tell you in advance it's a silly one, and some of you have even heard it before, but I'm going to tell it to you so I can set, uh, give you an illustration of what I'm getting ready to say. Years ago, before Brenda and I had kids, we had these things called date nights. And on this one particular date night that I'm referencing, uh, Brenda and I had gone to Dodge City to, to uh, watch a movie. Now, there's another backstory to why we went to Dodge City to watch the movie when we were from Garden City, but that's another sermon. I'll tell you that later. Uh, but anyway, it was... a. It was a very damp, densely foggy night. And we went to see a movie that was called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Any of you ever heard of it? And supposedly it was based on a a true story uh, of a serial killer in the town of Texarkana, Arkansas. The movie was about this never-identified deranged killer who who would seek out young people and murder them in the most brutal fashion imaginable. Uh, 
And there, you heard it, one of those positive, uplifting horror movies that was so popular back in the 70s that as your pastor, I encourage each of you to watch. Not really. <laughs> but now, now, the, now, the thing that made this movie so scary for me was the fact that often this, this deranged killer would chase young people through cornfields. Now, some of you may not know this, but at that time in my life, I was a farmer here in southwest Kansas, and I grew corn. And, you know, he would, he would chase these kids through these cornfields, and, and uh, most of the killings, wouldn't you know, took place on damp, foggy nights. And so here we are watching this movie on a densely foggy night, and the pivotal moment of the movie is when this, this killer is uh, crossing a train track just before a fast-moving train passes between him and the authorities that are trying to capture him. And the movie ends. And the killer is never to be heard from again. And it was scary. Matter of fact, I still get chills thinking about it. In fact, it was so scary that I remember something very specific. I must have been really panicked because I remember Brenda saying to me, Terry, you're hurting my hand. (laughs) Now, all the way back home from Dodge City, we're driving in dense fog. So dense you could hardly see. And all I could think of was that never-caught, deranged killer chasing me through that cornfield the next morning that I was going to walk through. I think that Brenda and I were so scared that even when we went to bed, we, we were holding on to each other so tightly we were afraid to move. But here's my point in telling you all of that. The tension in that film got so bad that I could hardly move. In fact, I thought of that movie in every cornfield from that day forward every time I walked through it. Now, why is that important and what in the world does it have to do with this story? Because there is no fear like the fear of death. I was planning on that deranged killer to show up in my cornfield. I couldn't hardly wait to get out of that. I mean, when the corn's over your head and, and you think you hear something behind you, you know, it's, it's got to be the guy from Texarkana, Arkansas, right? Well, all of that to say this. The human race has always been troubled about what happens after we die. In the ancient world, some people believed that that when you die, your life just burns out like a candle. Others in the ancient world believed that there was this underworld, sometimes that we referred to it as Sheol or or Hades, where departed spirits went when they died. And in this underworld, these spirits would have this, this shadowy existence and they could not come back to this real world. They just existed there. But the Jews, interestingly enough, the people that Jesus came for, the people who brought Jesus into this world, the Jews had a completely different belief about the afterlife. And their belief was one that was around 
As a matter of fact, a long time before Jesus, it was a belief in resurrection. The Jews had long believed that the problem isn't just that we all die, but they believed that the world is a mess, a world filled with pain and suffering, and the heart of this problem in their way of thinking was that humans wouldn't be able to fix the mess. And so they believed that this idea of resurrection was not just about the afterlife, but a God-perfected, God-redeemed, God-set life. They believed that there was a God who created all things and that one day, not only would he bring the righteous back to life, but he would heal all of creation. They believed that when this happened... It would be very dramatic, very obvious, undeniable, and it would be done in mass to all of God's children. And, and this is important, they believed that it would all happen at the end of history. Now remember that. They believed that it would happen at the end of the history. Their belief was that we are now living in this age, obviously, but when the resurrection occurred, we would be ushered into the age to come. Now, if you read the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, when Lazarus died and and was buried, you'll find in that story in John chapter number, what did I say it was, Leonard? John chapter number 11. You'll find in verse number 24 that Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb for, tw- for four days. And for some reason, Mary and Martha, his sisters, do not understand why Jesus hadn't come in time to save Lazarus' life. So when Jesus arrives, he tells them, I have come, or he explains his reason for being late, as he's going to do something that will bring glory to God. And Martha's response in verse number 24 is an interesting response. Jesus has asked her if she believes that her brother Lazarus will live again. Now look at her response. She says, yes, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. So they believed there was going to be a resurrection. They believed that that kind of resurrection that they were envisioning would take place on what would be the end of history. That Jesus would, or not Jesus, but that their Messiah would come and he would establish his throne. But little did uh, Martha know at that moment that Jesus was getting ready to raise her brother from the dead. You'll find that in verse 44. When he called Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus came forth. Now again, just about everybody else in the ancient world believed that life was an endless cycle. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, introduced to the human race, however, that the idea that that history was headed somewhere. And they began to look clear back in the Old Testament days, thousands of years before Jesus. They began to look for and anticipate the coming of their long-awaited Messiah. Now, again, just so we're clear on this, their Messiah would bring about the resurrection from the dead, and he would also heal all of the ills that existed in the world. And it would be 
the end of history. So what, again, does this have to do with Jesus' resurrection? Simply this. No one in Israel, no Jew would even think to claim that one individual could be resurrected from the dead in the middle of history. They couldn't buy that. They couldn't grasp it. Even after Jesus had resurrected Lazarus from the dead, the ruling religious body of the Jews, when, when they saw that nothing else, no one else had been raised, and all of the ills of the world still existed, they discounted Jesus. They said, if Jesus was truly the Messiah, all disease would have been eradicated, justice would reign, suffering would have ended. And since that didn't happen, their response to Jesus and to those of his followers who proclaimed him as their Messiah was, you guys need to stop talking nonsense. Jesus is not our Messiah. And they have believed that by and large from that day until today. Now, the idea of someone having been resurrected from the dead in the middle of history to them was nonsense. For the Jews, they believed that resurrection was an all-inclusive thing. If one rises from the dead, all will rise from the dead. But Jesus broke. He had a habit of doing that, you know. Jesus was a rabbi like other rabbis, but no one in Jewish history had ever taught with the authority in which Jesus taught. He spoke of God like other spiritual teachers had spoken, but nobody else ever claimed the intimacy with God that Jesus claimed to have. And those who followed Jesus knew that there had never been anyone like this man, Jesus. They believed he was their Messiah. But they thought that their Messiah would overthrow the Roman government and usher in for them what would be the kingdom of God. That's the history of their belief. But you see, the problem is none of them saw that there was a twist coming. Jesus would be crucified and die. Now, when Jesus died, even though he had told them that this was going to happen, there wasn't one of his followers who said, oh, this, this is right within the plan. Everything's going just according to plan. They didn't believe that. For them, Jesus' death was a, a tragic end to every dream and illusion that they had about their Messiah. Not one of his followers thought that his death was a good thing. In fact, we're told that when it became, became clear that he was going to die, all of his followers deserted him. The picture that we get in all four of these Gospels is that every one of his followers were disheartened, were dismayed, were disappointed, were disillusioned, and dispirited. That's where the Gospel of Mark could have ended. But then suddenly, they weren't any of those things. Suddenly, as a matter of historical record, this same group of people that was delusioned and disappointed by his death became convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead and they were motivated to spread that news at enormous risk of their own lives and their own well-being. Now, as I said earlier, some people in those times thought that people were gullible. 
They would believe anything. C.S. Lewis, in talking about that, said this, and I quote, he called it chronological snobbery. Ancient people, he says, are not stupid. They understand, they understood that dead people tend to stay dead. Maybe you've heard the story of the woman who looked out her window and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of her neighbor's rabbit. Uh, You see, this lady and her family did not get along well with their neighbor. And so when she saw that German shepherd shaking the life out of the neighbor's uh, rabbit, she knew that it was going to be a disaster. So she grabbed her broom and she pummeled her German shepherd until it dropped the rabbit from its mouth, the dead rabbit from its mouth. And seeing that the rabbit indeed was dead, she panicked. So she grabs the rabbit, she takes it inside, gives the dead rabbit a bath, blow dries it until its original fluffiness has returned, and then combs it until the rabbit looks like a rabbit again. Then she sneaks into her neighbor's yard and props it up in the cage that they had for the rabbit. An hour later... She heard screams coming from her neighbor's house next door. She innocently asked her neighbor what in the world was going on. And her neighbor said, it's our rabbit, our rabbit. He died two weeks ago and we buried him and now he's back. (laughs) People in the ancient world knew that dead rabbits stay dead. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright writes these words, Jesus and the movement that he started was not the first or the last messianic movement of the first century. There were many messianic movements in the first century, and in every case, he says, the would-be Messiah would get crucified by Rome just as Jesus had. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead because they knew better. Why did they know better? Because, as we've already said to the first century Jew, resurrection wasn't supposed to be a private event. It was a team sport. If you were following a particular would-be Messiah and he was crucified by the Roman government, you had two choices. You would either disband the movement or you would look for a new Messiah. And as we would expect, Jesus' followers believed that they were finished when Jesus breathed his last breath on that cross. But then two things happened. Two things. First, the witnesses in Mark 16 saw that the tomb was empty. And then secondly, and even more impactfully, Jesus appeared to his followers. Now, it was the combination of these two factors that was overwhelming. One without the other wouldn't have substantiated what had happened. If it was just an empty tomb, but but Jesus didn't appear to anybody, those who were skeptical of that story could say, it's just a case of grave robbery. But Jesus did appear. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote within just 20 years of Jesus' life, that the risen Jesus had not only appeared to Peter, to the other disciples, but he appeared to more than 500 witnesses after he rose from the dead. 
Trust me when I say to you that if the Romans could have produced the dead body of Jesus, they would have done it. Because that would have stamped out Christianity. On the other hand, if people reported that they had seen Jesus, but the tomb still had Jesus' body in it, skeptics could claim that those people were having visions or suffering from hallucinations. You see, the graves of heroes, particularly crucified messiahs, were commonly recognized as shrines by those who followed them. The problem in this instance, however, was that we had a tomb, but we didn't have a body in the tomb. It was empty. This is not simply a story that could have been made up by someone because it violated their understanding of what was going to happen in history. And there's another reason. There's another reason that substantiates that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead really happened. What did Mark tell us in the first verse of chapter number 16? He said that on that morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome were on their way to Jesus' tomb. Now let me ask you this. What do all three of those people have in common? They are women. So what does that mean? Well, nowadays, we might not notice something like that, but in ancient Israel, women were so low in status that they were not regarded as credible witnesses. In fact, a woman in Jesus' day was not even allowed to give testimony in a legal proceeding. So what that meant was, if if you committed a terrible crime that was only witnessed by women, your chances of going scot-free were pretty good. So how extraordinary it is then that Mark, the gospel writer, points out to us that the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb were women. So if you wanted somebody to believe your story, you probably should have picked somebody other than women in that day. But Mark told the story the way that it happened. It would have been... It would have seriously undermined the credibility of the claim if it were to come from women, but Mark felt it important enough to tell it as it was. The only plausible explanation for why all four Gospels say the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women is that it was women who found the tomb, and they found it empty. Now, it wasn't long before those who followed Jesus came to understand that what had taken place hadn't just happened to Jesus. And this is the twist that no one saw coming. They eventually began to piece together that the age to come that they had been living for, that that age that they'd all been looking for, it began the day, that day, in Christ Jesus. This little community of believers They were not transformed because of some sense of inspiration. They now believed that they too were a resurrection community. Let me tell you something, folks. Those of us here this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we are a resurrection community. It suddenly occurred to these believers, we were dead. We were dead in our sins. We were cut off from God. God had promised that he would fix the world, that he would forgive sin, that he would heal suffering, that he would redeem humanity. 
And that healing and that redemption has become now because has has come now because God is being faithful to his promise by raising Jesus from the dead. Soon after the resurrection, Jesus' followers realized that when Jesus died on the cross, it represented more than just his death. It was their death as well. They just didn't know that all of that was part of it when it was taking place, but it took the resurrection for them to see the depth of what had happened. They realized that on the third day, the greatest step in human history was taken. That stone was rolled away. And Jesus stood at the threshold of that tomb. And that first step that he took outside of that tomb has forever changed the world. And here's where it gets personal for us. There's one more step. It needs to be taken by each of us here today. I read a story some time ago of a woman who shared how she spent a great deal of her life living apart from God. Over time, she realized the limitations of her own self-sufficiency and pride, and, but she felt like she needed more information about God before she would be able to make a commitment to Him. And so she spent about a year of her life studying the things of God and asking questions, and it And it wasn't long before she realized that her issue was no longer a lack of information. Her issue was that she had commitment issues. She had never actually surrendered her life to God because she knew that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, that fact would literally change everything about her life. So at some point she decided that she indeed wanted to confess her sin and receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offered and start a new life. But she wanted the change to be a really clear, really evident change. So here's what she did. She went to her home. She stood in her kitchen, staring at the threshold between her kitchen and her living room. She said out loud, God... When I step across that line, I want you to know that I will be leaving my old life behind. I'm leaving behind my sin because I want to be forgiven. I want to be your child. I want Jesus to be my forgiver and my friend and my leader. And then she took the step across the threshold from her kitchen to her living room. She later said that's the biggest step I've ever taken in life because I entered into a relationship with God. Now when I have problems or questions or doubts, she said, I remember that line. I remember taking that step. And I remember that no matter what I'm going through, he has promised that he will be with me. Have you ever taken that step? If you haven't, I'm telling you today would be a great day to do it. Just one last illustration, and it's a very true one. Years ago, Brenda and I, while we were still on the farm, we had one of those summer rains that are all too infrequent around here. But that meant that we had three or four days that we didn't have to worry about irrigation or anything on the farm, so we could get away for a few days. So we decided to take our two girls at that time. One was a two-year-old and one was a six-week-old. 
to Colorado Springs for a couple of days. Why did we choose Colorado Springs? Because it was relatively close. They had a zoo, and the hotel had a swimming pool. How many parents know what I'm talking about? Now, those two daughters, Tara and Tricia, were, as I said, two, week, two years and six weeks old at that time. And uh, as Brenda was taking care of the baby, Tricia, I'm in the pool, and, and Tara is jumping into the water from the side of the pool into my waiting arms. Now, of course, Brenda and I had warned her, we don't want you running around the pool because if you run, you could slip and fall into the water, and if you fall into the water, you could drown. Now, we didn't intend to tell her about drowning to that degree, but she understood that drowning would be a bad thing. But apparently, her knowledge of Drowning was a lot scarier to her than we had intended for it to be. And so at one point, I, was, I had become distracted talking to Brenda as she sat by the pool, and, and Tara jumped into the water without me seeing her do it. And she went all the way down to the bottom, which in the short end of the pool was only three or four feet. And she was just under for a second or two before I saw her and reached and pulled her back to the top. When I pulled her out of the water, she was crying, of course, and and she looked at Brenda and I, and she said, I almost drowned. I almost drowned. And, of course, Brenda and I both reassured her, no, Tara, you didn't almost drown. What you did is not drowning. You didn't even come close to drowning. Now, I'll also add to that, apparently that stuck with Tara because for the next 20 years or so, everyone she told who would listen told her that we almost drowned her in Colorado Springs. (laughs) But what she didn't include in her tragic story about her drowning was that I was right there. Her father was right there, and in the moment that she slipped under the surface of that water, which was scary for her at the time, my arms were right there for her, and they were plenty strong enough to pull her up out of that water. Tara, you were perfectly safe, and you were more alive than ever. I tell you that, friends, because the story of the resurrection isn't just true news. It's good news. You see, when Jesus says no to Martha, or says to Martha in John eleven twenty six, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. He's not just using a metaphor or giving her some vague hope. He is telling her that death has no power to take you from the arms of the Father. Guilt cannot separate you from God. Whatever bad news you might be facing, if you cross that line of believing and trusting in Jesus, you have a resurrection coming. Worship team, would you come please? To the elderly person whose health is failing, almost gone, You don't have to live in fear. There is a resurrection coming.
to the devastated wife or husband whose spouse has left you and you feel betrayed and alone. You don't have to feel like a loser. There is a resurrection coming. To the frightened parents of a wayward child who's lost, you don't have to live burdened by the weight of blame. You have a resurrection coming. To the anxious worker who has lost their job, you have a resurrection coming. To the guilt-ridden drug addict hiding in the shadows, you have a resurrection coming. To that lonely young person just longing to find love somewhere, you have a resurrection coming. What I'm saying to you this morning is that whoever you are, whatever you might have done in the past, if you've taken that all-important step of faith, you are living a new reality. It's called a resurrection life. And as I have found multiple times throughout the course of my lifetime, our Father's arms are strong enough to pull us up and out of whatever we've gotten ourselves into. There is no depth that he cannot reach. There is no length that he will not go. Your father wants to reach you and resurrect you. He's not lost his power. There's a resurrection coming. Lord Jesus, this morning... I know that that great amount of blood that you shed while hanging on that cross was life-saving blood. It saved not only those who were a part of what would become the early church, it saved me. It saved many of us in this room And it's still as effective today to save and to rescue as it was on the day that you shed it. And so, Holy Spirit, as I've been praying throughout this week, that you would walk each aisle, walk each row of chairs, examine each heart, and compel each heart to make this the day that they take the greatest step they've ever taken. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, how many of you have taken the step to allow Jesus to be your Savior? Just raise your hand way high. Rejoice over that. Rejoice. But I'm noticing that not every hand was raised. And if you have not yet taken that step and you'd like to make that step today, whether down on the floor or up in the balcony, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you for the world. Raise your hand. I see that hand. Others, as I see that hand, thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. Anyone else anywhere? 
I see that hand. Thank you so much. I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for convicting hearts this morning. Thank you even more for giving us hope of a resurrection. Our old lives, lives that were lived in sin, the destination for those lives was death, eternal death. But the gift that God has given us is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'd like for you to stand to your feet, everyone, this morning. And for those of you who raised your hands today, I want you in this time while we sing together this song as just before we dismiss, those of you who raised your hands, I want you to just pray this prayer very, real simply. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died to forgive my sin. And I believe that you rose again on the third day. And today I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that you died and rose again. And I ask you from this day forward to find your home in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Jacob, would you lead us in Cornerstone, please? Song that tell us about his grace. You see, friends, the greatest discovery of my life is when I decided and came to the conclusion that it wasn't about abiding to a set of rules and regulations that in my human flesh were impossible for me to keep. It was about receiving his undeserved grace. It's a free gift. You don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to earn it. Jesus is giving it. That's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. He gave us forgiveness for every dumb, stupid thing we've ever done. How many of you? Come on. And He gave it to us free. And it's ours for the taking. Now, who can refuse a deal like that? I'll tell you who. People who don't understand grace. Who think that they have to earn God's favor. You see, that's what the church of Jesus' day was all about. You have to earn God's favor. As a matter of fact, they believed it so strongly that they took Jesus, who was trying to usher in grace, and hung him on a cross because he didn't fit into their way of thinking. Grace is available. Whatever your need, whatever your storm, His grace is available to you today. Sing verse number three, Jacob. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for every person here today and especially thank you for those who responded to the urging of your Holy Spirit and by faith have received you as their Savior today. 
Thank you, Lord, for those who have followed you in the ordinance of water baptism. Lord, may the world see the change, the transformation that you have brought to their lives. Be with us, Lord, as we change the order of this service this morning. Help us all to remember today is Resurrection Day. It's not Easter, it's Resurrection Day. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Amen. Now, before you're dismissed, we are going to have an Easter egg hunt. And no, adults, you cannot participate. We are going to have an Easter egg hunt for the little ones up to age five, I believe, in the playground area, just outside of those doors at the front of the church. For the older ones, it's going to be out where the church sign is, in the grassy area, and we will have a a human shield between that grassy area and the highway, so no one gets to diligently hunting for eggs to the degree that they go out to the highway to try to find some. So just hope you can take time, watch the excitement in these little ones as they find Easter eggs filled with candy. And adults, don't steal it from them. Okay, make